Amen. So did you see the Powerball this week? 1.6 billion dollars. That's a lottery right there, right? How hard can it be? Just choose five numbers and a Powerball, right? That's my kind of job, $1.6 billion. But is it that easy? No, there's this thing called odds. So the odds of you winning the Powerball, choosing those five numbers and the Powerball right, it's one in two times 10 to the eighth. That's a two with eight zeros behind it. That's very difficult. So I read an article from 2018 when the Powerball was again like astronomical numbers. And it was saying, you have better odds of this happening to you than winning the lottery, okay? So you have better odds of being struck by a meteorite than winning the lottery. Do you know anyone that's been struck with a meteorite? Have you ever read a news story of, being, of anybody being struck by a meteorite, right? And then this was written in 28. You have better odds of getting the plague. In 2020, that all changed. Because you have really good odds of getting the plague in 2020. Um, and the last one is you have better odds of being killed by a dropping coconut. Right? So odds matter, don't they? They really matter. It's possible to, in, you know, one in two times 10 to the eighth, it's possible but it's really, really implausible. And that's not that big of a number, okay? So we're doing this series right now called Good Question. And it's questions that I get emailed pretty frequently or I will have conversations with people and they'll begin to bring up these questions about faith. And I just kind of put them together. Here's the ones I hear a lot. Let's just pull them out and look at them. So last week we looked at... This book right here, is this book true? And you can look at that, you can watch that or do whatever you want, that's last week. Today we're looking at this question, is there a God? I get this all the time. And typically here's the reason why people are doubting God. The number one scientific tool that seems to separate, especially young people, from their faith, you know what it is? It's Darwinism. So when we start talking and when we start having this conversation, Darwinism, it's like it's up there because it's kind of exploded in popularity. There's all these books right now on like, it's really called neo-Darwinism now. But if you're in tune with the 20th, 21st century or high school or college or these videos that get sent out all the time and these memes, what they are is they've been taken from these militant atheists and there's only like five of them. There's Richard Dawkins, he's the high priest of it. Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, who passed away a little while ago. He was one of them as well. And they just, man, they're everywhere. There's only like five of them. They are everywhere. You watch a news show on Fox News or CNN about COVID-19, and there'll be an atheist there. They'll be like, what does the atheist think about COVID-19? Well, I don't know about it, but I know you don't, you don't need to pray because there is no God. You're like, really? You listen to public radio and they'll have the atheists on there. It's, it's really kind of interesting to me that they just seem everywhere. Like there's probably one here today. You're welcome. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Talk with you afterwards if you would like, right? And here's what they do. 
they start to kind of demonize belief. So Richard Dawkins is famous for saying this, that don't call him an atheist anymore, call him a bright, and call unbelievers dims. That if you believe in God, you're a dimwit. They're the brights, we're the dimwits. So it's, it's more antagonistic. And there are three kind of tenets to their, their attack on faith, and here they are. Number one, it's this. Neo-Darwinism, also called modern synthesis. So if you're reading literature or um, reading a, a paper that's scientifically written, it won't call it Neo-Darwinism sometimes. It'll just say modern synthesis, which is the same word. It's synonymous. So Neo-Darwinism, modern synthesis accounts for everything when it comes to life. So when you look out across the spectrum of, of bacteria to humans, Neo-Darwinism is the way that all of it came to be. And the mechanism that Neo-Darwinism works on is this. Random mutations, has to be random, cannot be guided. Random mutations plus natural selection, which is survival of the fittest, plus time, a whole gob of it, equals all life. So that is the game plan of neo-Darwinism. Random mutations plus natural selection plus time equals everything that we have in life. But the more that you read about neo-Darwinism and modern synthesis is, is this. They actually expanded to almost every field now. Like you can use these same techniques to say, here's how we came up with politics or our laws or literature or music or love or the universe or the mind. That it's actually just expanding. And this is the way that you explain everything. The truth is, neo-Darwinism has great difficulty even explaining a simple protein bond. That's the actual truth. And we'll get to that, not this week, but next week, right? So that's number one. Neo-Darwinism, modern citizens, accounts for all that you see in life. Number two, religion is irrational. So, there's this famous quote, I have it written down by Mark Twain, where he says, faith is believing what you know ain't so. And that's what they would say. That people that are believers have checked their mind and they're just ignoring the facts and they're ignoring everything that's leading in the direction of neo-Darwinism in order to believe something that's just anti-rational. That you can't be a thoughtful person and be a believer. And then thirdly, that actually religion is evil. And that's where they get militant about it. So they believe that religion is the cause of what is bad in our world. So 9-11 happened in our country because of religious people, right? That you go back through history and you look at wars and wars have always been caused because of religious things, two religions that come in conflict with each other. Right? They think January 6th, what happened in Washington, D.C., was religious people, that you can just point the finger and say religion is evil. So Christopher Hitchens, one of the five big guys, he wrote a book called God Is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. I'm like, everything? 
So religion poisoned the sun, the moon, clothing, Tesla, the government. I think the government does a good job by itself, right? Like everything, that is a radical statement, right? That's crazy to me. And they're militant. They are militant. So Stephen Hawking, who was a guy I read and I actually liked before he passed away, in, in mocking Christians, he said this. He said, religion is a fairy tale for those afraid of the dark. I say two can play at that game. Atheism is a religion for those afraid of the light. <laughs> right? But it gets more serious than that. So there is, a, there is something that's actually working in our education system against faith. And I'll give you a quote from a very big professor. He's at Harvard University. He's not at RCC. He's at Harvard, top five in the world. His name is Richard Rorty. He is a professor of philosophy. He says this, let me read this to you. To arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with a view more like our own under the benevolent Hirschcraft, that's guidance, of people like me and to escape the grip of their frightened, vicious, dangerous parent. That's you. Goes on. Indeed, parents who send their children to college should recognize that as professors, we are going to go right on trying to discredit you in the eyes of your children, trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable. Woo! <laughs> and you pay a hundred grand for that privilege every year. Wow, thank you, Richard and Rorty. I appreciate that, right? It's militant. And it is in our system. You have to recognize that as a parent, right? Which is weird to me because it seems like the two big tenets of these militant atheists are this. Number one, there is no God. And number two, I hate him. Which is weird because I don't hate things that I believe don't exist, right? I've never been in the, in the kitchen with my wife and been like, man, I hate unicorns. Stinking unicorns. People that believe in them and they're ruining this world. Man, I hate Tinkerbell. People who believe in fairies, ah, fairy bumper stickers, they're, they're ruining our country. Like, it's like irrational. If you don't believe in it, who cares? But they do. It's like something is driving them. Dr. Rorty, something's driving them with a hatred of what we believe. And so there's a new religion, and it's this, science says. And it really is the religion that drives our country. So we have become a people who look to science to answer every question. And there's, we'll talk more about this next week. There's good parts of science, no doubt about it. But be careful if science says, be careful. So we're in two weeks and that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna try to look at this question. Is there a God from a scientific viewpoint? And I believe there are four massive arguments that lead you to faith in God. They're the universe and its origins morality and where we got it, biology, which is the wheelhouse of neo-Darwinism, and then lastly, just value. 
Like we have value and we know that, okay? So those are the four we're gonna cover the first two today, universe and morals, right? So the universe. We've got all this stuff, right? Planets and suns and moons and just more stuff than you can imagine. Here's what I know. Stuff comes from somewhere, right? You might be wearing a shirt and inside it'll say, made in Rwanda. What does that mean? The stuff that you have on right now came from a place from Rwanda, right? So please, if you're an unbeliever, show me the peer-reviewed article that says, here's where the universe came from. Show me that, because I wanna see that. I have not found it yet, because it doesn't exist. Stuff comes from somewhere. So four weeks ago, we talked about the Big Bang, because it was actually in Second Peter. And the Big Bang was resisted by science up until 50 years ago, because what that said was this, the universe had a beginning. And if the universe had a beginning, guess what? That's what the Bible says. It's Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning, God created, right? And so atheists, and I had quotes and I showed them to you from atheists who said, we cannot believe in a big bang because it gives too much credence to the creationists in the Bible, right? So we did that. You can pick that up if you want to. So big bang gave a lot of, lot of power, a lot of power to the Bible. So Richard Dawkins, the high priest of atheism, he's in a debate with a person that believes, was asked this question. He goes, oh, 50, 50. The Bible you know, had a 50% chance of getting it right. I'm like, really? Have you read origin stories, Dawkins? I've read a bunch of them. And you go across the board on how we got the stuff that we have right now. And not one of them said, in the beginning, God created the universe. It's not as simple as 50, 50. There's, well, this thing was cut up and strewn across the universe and each of them popped into something, right? Like, that's silly. It's a dismissal of what he knows is a very powerful argument for beginning. So Stephen Hawking, here here's what happened. Very smart guy, not a believer. But in about 1967, the, the Hubble telescope, all these things started to show us that the red shift started to show us the universe is expanding. So this is what he did. He said, well, if you look at the trajectory of things and you begin to draw lines backwards, if you could reverse the tape, if you would, you come to a point. He called that zero space. Let me ask you, how much stuff do you think you can put in zero space? Probably zero stuff would fit in zero space, right? If you're making a uh, carry-on on for your airline, eventually you get to zero space. And guess what? You can't put anything else in it. So zero space, and, and that's a now scientific term. There was a zero space. Now, if you read Big Bang, it's always after zero space when there was some stuff and what happens, but it's never the zero space because everyone knows this. In order to get what we've got here, you either had to have a mind that was powerful enough to do it, or you had to begin with matter. You, you have to have one of those two. Well, zero space by Stephen Hawking, who was a brilliant physicist, one of the br most brilliant in the 20th century, he kind of eliminated matter, but there's no matter. There's a zero space time when there was nothing. So what are you left with? You're left with a mind. That's all you've got left. You have a mind 
that was great enough to begin to create what we see today. So if you're a student, look at the origins of the universe because what's happening, and I'll give you quotes from really, really smart people that are saying, yeah, the evidence, if you're following the evidence like a scientist is supposed to, there's a mind, a powerful mind. So that's the universe. And then fine tuning. So in order to get everything that we've got, things had to be tuned. And Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross, he says, there are 180 things, constants, that have to be exactly what they are in order for us to get what we've got. So uh, the weight of an electron, the speed of light, gravitational, I just, there's 180 of them. And if you were to change one of them, 0.0000000001%, nothing works. Like it's that fine-tuned of a universe. So there's this guy, his name is Eugene Kunin. He is a bioinfomatician. What a job, huh? Hey, Eugene, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a bioinfomatician. And so what he does is he looks at all this kind of information and he uses it to calculate out odds. All right, so you've got this fine-tuning argument. What are the odds that a universe like ours could just bang be here? This is the number he has. There's, this is the odds. One in 10 times 1,018. So that is a one with 1,018 zeros behind it. Let's think about that number for a second. Remember we talked about the lottery? What are your odds of winning the lottery? Well, it's a two with eight zeros behind it. It looks just like that. And it's possible, but very improbable. So there's a number, it's one in 10 times the power of 50. This is the same odds as zero. So when science calculates out and they come up with anything above a 10 with 50 zeros behind it, then they just say, yeah, it's never gonna happen. Doesn't matter how much time you give it, doesn't matter how many opportunities you give it, it's never gonna happen. But what about the number he came up with? That's what it looks like. Those are the odds of the universe coming into existence. So now they have this thing, I don't know if you're following it, called multiverse. Well, we had a billion, trillion, quadrillion universes and finally the universe got it right. Well, that sets off a whole another set of problems. It's just zero. There's no likelihood of us getting what we got without some kind of mind. It's zero, 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 all right? So let me give you one other thing, stars. I don't know if you've studied stars, but at college, I had to take these classes to well-round me as an engineer, and I take astronomy. And in astronomy, I remember the professor just saying, hey, stars, here's how it happened. We had Big Bang, you had these clouds, right? These clouds coalesced, gravity caused them to come to collapse, and as they collapsed, the pressure in the center of the cloud lit the fires of nuclear fission that then spit out all the elements that we need for planets and moons and asteroids. Like, it was done, like, simple. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's what, they know everything is happening. And just, okay, that's how stars came. Perfect, you guys got it figured out. And that was like the public image of science. And there was no like, well, you know, it doesn't quite work. There was none of that. So is that true? Is that, do we know how stars got in the galaxies? Well, you guys know this guy? Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? He has a big show. He's on everywhere. He is a 
evolutionary astrophysicist. So it's taking the neo-Darwinistic viewpoint and using it and applying it to stars and planets and everything that you see out there, right? Super smart guy. Well, his public face, if you've watched any of his show, is he is a fanatical atheist. How about privately? Well, listen to this quote from him. It's about stars. Not all gas clouds in the Milky Way can form stars at all time. More often than not, what did you just say that right there? How many stars are there? Billions upon billions upon billions, but more often than not, the cloud is confused. <laughs> A confused cloud. Oh, poor cloud. I'm confused. Okay, I love that. I love the, the lack of scientific lingo when they get in areas that they know, yeah, we don't know what's happening here. Whenever you see stuff like this, this is a very bright man saying, we're clueless, right? The cloud is confused about what to do next. Actually, astrophysicist, what is Neil deGrasse Tyson? An astrophysicist. Actually, astrophysicists are the confused ones here. We know the cloud wants to collapse. I mean, of course, if I was a cloud, I would want to collapse. Like again, like clouds don't have feelings. They don't care, right? Wants to collapse under its own weight to make one or more stars. But rotation as well as turbulent motion. So when you swing something around, so these glass clouds, because of the Big Bang, they're just swirling. That's why the sun swirl. So what happens when you swirl something around? It wants to spread out. Right? So you have this, this rotational inertia that's actually trying to cause the cloud to expand as well as turbulent motion. So this is thermodynamics and that kind of stuff. Within the, within the cloud, work against that fate. So too, does the ordinary gas pressure you learned about in high school chemistry class. So if you've ever compressed gas, what happens to the temperature? It gets hot. Feel your compressor. Whenever you push a gas together, it gets hot. What happens to a gas when it gets hot? It expands. So you've got this just fundamental, simple principle that they're saying, oh, these, they, these you know, gaseous clouds compressed and ignite the, the nuclear fission that spits out everything. Well, actually, yeah, just regular gas pressure prevents that. Galactic magnetic fields also fight collapse. They penetrate the cloud and latch onto any free-roaming charged particle contained therein, restricting the ways which the cloud would respond to its self-gravity. The scary part is that if none of us knew in advance that stars exist, frontline research would offer, offer plenty of convincing reasons for why stars could never form. There's the private picture. Your Astronomy 101 class at OSU or U of O or RCC or SOU is we got it figured out. The hidden behind the public perception is we're clueless. We don't have, these things should not have formed the way they do, right? It's like there's a difference. The more you study this stuff and the more you read it, what's put out publicly 
and what's believed privately are radically different. Right? We just saw that about stars. You know what I call this? Star Wars. That's what that is. You got the private, (laughs) we can't do it public, and we got it all figured out. Star Wars. Okay? So how did it happen? I like Isaiah 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Have you ever seen how astrophysicists name a new star? Like 1N2-65-421000. I bet God has a lot better names than that. God created them. God created them. That's, that's what you actually see. You can read Job chapter 38, one through seven. I love that. It's a poetic account. And it says, the sons of God, whoever they are, sing as God was creating these stars. They're just like, whoa, that is so cool. Man, I think that's a much better way to explain it. So listen, everyone's going to believe in a virgin birth. You'll either believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, or you will believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Take your pick. Which one is actually more difficult to believe? And do scientists, I I thought from college, I did check my brain to be a believer. Do scientists believe in God? Like, is it okay to believe? Are, Are science and God, are they enemies? Or are they friends? Let me give you an article. You can look it up if you want. It's called Science Finds God. And it's about this guy. He's amazing. It's in the Washington Post. His name is Alan Sandage. He is considered to be one of the foremost astronomers of the 20th century. Brilliant. Discovered the Hubble constant, the age of the universe. I mean, he is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. When he was young, he says this about himself. As a boy, I was an atheist. Didn't grow up with God. Parents didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in God. Atheist, atheist, atheist. But there was this symposium in like 1981 where you have people that believe in God starting with you know, some, some physicists and stuff, just a small group of them. And then over here was all these people that did not believe in God. There was atheists, right? And Alan Sandage comes in and he's the father of them all. He's the stud. Comes in, they've got a chair set for him to sit down with the non-believers. He came in there, looked at the chair, went over and found a new chair and sat with the believers. And they were shocked. They're like, oh, oh no, we lost our Goliath. This is bad, right? And this is what he said after that. I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle of mind. God to me is a mystery, but it is the explanation for the miracle of existence. Why there is something rather than nothing. PhD, astrophysicist, one of the most, the father of it, of the 20th century, brilliant man. A couple years after that, he put his faith in Jesus Christ and begins to write these incredible articles that, that show, hey, science and God, they're not enemies. They're friends, right? John Polkinghorne, physicist at University of Oxford, brilliant man. Like, he was considered one of the foremost in his field, taught there, brilliant man. When he turned 47, because of what he was learning, he left Oxford and became the pastor of a small church because he said, this is what actually what matters. I mean, just left it all. Or Anthony Flew. So if you don't know his name, he was the 20th century's Richard Dawkins, right? And so 
He wrote a book, 2007, and here's what it's called. There is a God, how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And this is a quote from him, Antony Flew. The most impressive arguments for God's existence are those that are supported by recent scientific discoveries. And he says, the argument to intelligent design, we'll talk about that next week, is enormously stronger than it was when I first met it. And he becomes a believer in God. How about this, Nobel Prize? These are scientists. You get a Nobel Prize for being a scientist or making peace, which is you know, one of the awards. From 1900 to 2000, 65% of all Nobel Prize winners believed in God. So there's this public perception that you know, God and science are enemies, but it's not true, not true at all. So Richard Dawkins wants to say this. He wants to say, science has buried God. I have a stain. Science is burying atheism. Because if you're really paying attention, not to the public view, but if you're actually reading scientific literature and the studies that are coming out, more and more and more are pointing to God. You have people that are studying the stars and they're saying, there's gotta be a God. Because here's what happens. It's Psalm 19, verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. And that's what's happening. These guys are studying it, they're watching it, and they're seeing this can't happen. It's impossible. Stars don't form the way we've said they've formed. It just doesn't happen. There has to be something else. And since there was zero space, there has to be a mind. And that mind has to be God. So that's the universe. Morality. So morality. So morality is simple. It's what's right and wrong. I've been to about 35 countries in my life. No matter where I go, there's universal morality, right? Everyone kind of believes essentially the 10 commandments, kindergarten morality. Yeah, don't take things, don't kill people, right? Leave somebody else's spouse alone. Like that's universal, no matter where you go. Now, how is that? Why is that? Because neo-Darwinism says this, that the way that we came, the origin of species was random mutations, plus natural selection, which is survival of the fittest, plus time equals us. So we should look like all of our predecessors, like our maker. And our maker is natural selection by survival of the fittest. So does nature have morals? Does a lion have morals? Does a lion... Look at the cheetah that just spent all of her energy running down an antelope to kill it so that she can get milk to keep her cubs alive. Does a lion come to that cheetah and be like, man, you know what? I should just let her eat that. She's a struggling mom, single mom right now. She's got three kids to take care of. Yeah, you know, ah. I'm gonna, does a lion do that? No, it takes it from her, right? And the cubs die. That's nature, red in tooth and claw. And I remember watching used to bother me so much. Watching Mutual of Omaha's. Remember that, Wild Kingdom? Who watched that? Dude, that was the only show back when I was a kid that you could watch about nature, right? And you'd see the hyena go up and steal the antelope from the cheetah. And as a kid, I'd ask my mom, why don't the people filming this stop that? Right? This is wrong. They're gonna kill some cubs. Because I knew in my heart, that's wrong. But nature doesn't teach that. Nature says, might is right. That's what nature says. 
It's why the silverback gorilla, when it kicks out the old silverback gorilla, the first thing that silverback gorilla does is it takes over that clan. It finds all of its predecessors' babies and crushes their skulls. You don't worry about his kids. You take care of my kids. Nature is red and tooth and claw. It is brutal. It is might, is right. That's the way it works, right? So I joke about this. We call it mother nature. And this is from the movie Cinderella. Don't get mad at me. I say, don't call it mother nature. Call it stepmother nature. Like it's wicked. It is unfeeling. It will take you out. It is survival of the fittest. It is hard. So why do we look different? Why do we have this in kind of kids very early in life to say, that's not fair, right? The lion never says that's not fair. The lion says, I am stronger. I'll do whatever I want. So why is it, why are we so different than our neo-Darwinistic maker of survival of the fittest? Why are we different? Well, there's some arguments that people have. One of them is this, and, and it says, culture created our morality, right? So this is John Paul Sartre. He's an atheist philosopher. He says, so because of that, each culture has to decide what's right or wrong. You know the problem with that? Culture is changing what they say is right or wrong. Okay, go back 700 years in Norway, if, if you go, went back there, what was right for a man 700 years ago in Norway was to rape and pillage wherever and however he wanted. Is that modern day Norway? No way, it's one of the most gender equal countries in existence. They've changed. So, so what was right or what was wrong? Like there's no standard and it does not work. So there's a paper, if you wanna get it, you can. It'll help put you to sleep at night, it's this. It's a gal who, the, who is an anthropologist working on her dissertation. She was an um, expert in the Sudanese culture. And as an anthropologist, you are taught never interfere. Cultures do what is culturally right. We're just there to take notes and be like, okay, that's interesting. All right, good for you. All right, yeah. So she's, um, she wrote this paper called Anthropologists, Cultural Relativism, and Universal Human Rights. So she embeds with a Sudanese tribe. She's with them, she's traveling around and she's just taking notes like an anthropologist do, making no judgment call on what they do, right or wrong, until she witnessed this. Little girls being taken into a tent and female genital mutilation happening. And she says she was appalled. And she wrote, I couldn't, I couldn't not say that was not right. I couldn't not say that that was something that they should be doing. Everything changed. Didn't matter how much she'd been educated and told, you know, they're just doing what's right for them. She goes, that is evil and wrong. And then she was asked one time in a speech, well, what gives you the authority to say that was wrong? She goes, I don't know. I just knew it was wrong. I knew you should not do that to little girls, whether your culture says it or not. That whole culture thing doesn't work. John Paul Sartre, sorry, doesn't work. Or this one. That somehow, you know, humans evolved socially and as we evolved socially, we just became the, became the kind of creatures that said, you know, live and let live. You do what you, you gotta do. You just be you, right? I call it the hippie moral. Now, I like hippies. I like their choice in vehicles. I think Volkswagens are awesome. I like their gardens. I like the non-confrontational style. Love hippies. Here's the problem with it. Here's the problem with moral by hippie. What's true then? Because essentially what you're saying is, hey, you be you, you do what you're gonna do is you're saying everyone be, gets to be the little God. 
and they get to decide what's right or wrong. How does that work when your neighbor puts the driveway on your side of the line? Are you like, well, you know, he's just being him. That's okay. No, it's why we have courts and law and police because we know that does not work. People will abuse that. That does not work. And then justice, who gets to set a standard, right? If there's no, like to that anthropologist, what, what gives you the right to say that's wrong? I just knew it was wrong. Okay, but there's no standard then. Those things just do not work. The thing is with humans, if we came through a natural selection, survival of fittest, we don't look like our maker. We don't look like that. So Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The Selfish Gene, that all life is about me getting my DNA into the next generation. That's all it's about, the selfish gene. Wait a second then why would anyone ever adopt a child? And adoption happens all the time throughout history with humans, that we will take care of someone else's genes and help them and love them as our own. Why do we know like certain things are wrong, like how some countries treat women, that you can't go out of your house without your husband, you, you, you have to wear these kind of clothes, that you cannot get a driver's license. Like we somehow know that's just, that's just wrong. How do we know that? Why is that? Why do we not look like, why do we not look like that? That we know might is not right. Just because you have more guns or bigger guns doesn't mean you're right. Like we know that. Why is that? Here's why. Genesis 1, 26. God said, let us make man in our image. We don't look like nature because we weren't created after nature. You and I were created with a different view, a different fingerprint. We were supposed to look like God. We're supposed to be image bearing him, his love, his mercy, his grace, his adoption, his care. It's, I'll read one more text. Romans chapter two, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. We have a law that's been written on our heart because we're not created by neo-Darwinism. We are created by God. And that stamp is on us. It's why we look very different than the animal kingdom. It's why we know might is not right. It's why we care for the sick and help the poor. It's why we do all these things that you wouldn't do if we were simply a product of natural selection, survival of the fittest, right? So people ask me all the time, Matt, prove to me that God exists. And I'll say, I cannot prove to you that God exists. Just like you cannot prove to me that God does not exist. But I can give you evidence. And evidence is different. It's like this, I can't prove to you that my wife loves me. I don't have a formula that says, you know, that equals MC squared. I don't have proof that my wife loves me, but I have evidence that my wife loves me. And I have enough evidence that my wife loves me that I'll die for that evidence. There's enough evidence that there's a God. There's enough evidence that that God loves you. And when you have that evidence, you'll die for it. And disciples throughout history have done exactly that. Exactly that. And when you hear the story of Jesus, doesn't it resonate with your heart? The strong becomes weak to help the weak. The rich spends his resources on the poor. 
The one who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Does not your heart sing and you say, that's the true story. That's what I love. That's what my heart was tuned for. That's it. That's evidence. And that's why every Sunday we partake in remembrance of Jesus' story because it's the true story. It's the one that we resonate with. It's the one that we know that's how we're supposed to live. The strong, helping the weak, not attacking the weak. The rich, helping the poor, not exploiting them. We know that's the right way. So Jesus today, as we hold the bread and the cup, may each heart in here rejoice that you, the strong one, you, the hero, allowed yourself to be slaughtered on our behalf so that we, so that we could become strong. You allowed yourself to be expelled from paradise, from perfection, from heaven, so that we could get our ticket punched to come back. May we remember that. That's the best story. I pray that each of us would have enough evidence to know and that we would set our feet firmly on the rock that is your life, your death, your resurrection for us. Let's eat together. And we hold this cup. Each of us are created in your image. But sin has marred that image. Like a cancer that steals resources and destroys the host. Damaging how we image you. Damaging how we bear a witness of your grace and your mercy, and your love, and your forgiveness to a thousand generations. And so I pray as we drink of this cup that you would restore that image. Where we need forgiveness, would you forgive us? Where we need grace, would you fill us up? Where we need mercy, may we just explode with mercy for people. May we, by the power of your blood today, image bear you well, I pray. Let's drink together. Amen. So you know what we do here. If you need prayer, we'll sing a song. There'll be some people up here, they wanna pray for you. Maybe it's for faith, maybe it's for health, maybe it's for shalom, maybe it's for peace, maybe it's for marriage, maybe it's for your kids, maybe, it doesn't matter. Come up, be prayed for. We do baptisms. So last night I was putting my seven-year-old Myron to bed and he's been talking a lot about baptism. And he's like, dad, if I believed on Jesus already and accepted it in my heart, why do I need to be baptized? And I said, it's like this, because he has this, this science experiment thing with magnets. 
I said, I've told you about magnets before, how they attract each other. And I, I've explained magnets to you before, but then you have this, this kit now that you're able to experience what magnets do, right? And that's important. It, it, helps, it helps solidify in your head what magnets do. I said, you believe in your heart. You've confessed with your mouth, Jesus is your Lord and Savior, right? And he's saved you. And that's great. And that's awesome. I see when you get baptized, it's like the experiment. It's like you experience this. And something happens in that moment. Yes, though my sins were like scarlet, they've been made. What a great day to be baptized. Right? The old is passed away. It's been washed away. And I'm new. I go into these waters and I come out brand new, a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's the experience, if you would, of all that. That's baptism, buddy. And so maybe today's your day to be baptized. Do it. What a great day to be baptized. If you're doing well, thank Jesus. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above. It comes from him. Be thankful. Would you stand for this final song?